Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <laughs> we need a second shofar blast. Yeah, I know, right? Ready to do it again. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. <laughs> Asking you shall receive. Um, Lisa would like to come up and uh, share something with us. Uh, um, real quick. The first song that we did in the dance circle today, um, the, the lyrics were ones I think that we're all, excuse me, wrestling with right now. Um, it says, I love the Lord because he hears my prayer. Uh, I love the Lord because he hears my cry. Um, and call on the Lord for he will always hear. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I feel like we're in a place of wrestling with that truth. Um. Because we were praying with expectation of a great miracle. And we know that God hears. And we know that he always hears. It's not that we didn't pray hard enough or loud enough or right enough. That there was no flaw in our cry. And there was no flaw in his hearing. And so we're wrestling with these truths. And scripture says that his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. And we know that, but it's still hard to submit to, yes? Um... And I was reminded, as we are dancing, that this is not the first time that um, an expectation of miracles has gone awry, and yet the kingdom is furthered more. Um, I was specifically thinking of the five men um, who were killed by the Wydoni. Um, that would be Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and the three others. Um, where they went with an expectation of reaching people for the gospel and it was going to be miraculous and they were killed and yet it paved a path that brought the gospel in a way that it could not have been brought otherwise and so we have to cling to that and and submit to that um, and I was reminded of about a month ago, um, I awoke in the middle of the night. 
I did not awake from a dream. I don't remember anything like that. But when I awoke, I was fearful of death. I, in my physical body, I felt anxious of dying for no reason. And I started to pray, and the prayer that came forth was, God, only take my life when my death will further the kingdom more than my life. And I have to say that the peace of that submission was immediate and I went back to sleep. But we have to live in that space where it's whatever, God. Let your kingdom come, your will be done, even with my life, even with my death. And so it's just something I just beg you to reach that point of submission to the Lord. And if you're not there, find someone to talk to, find someone to pray with. Because I know in my heart that his kingdom is worth all. And this is the space where we live. And this is the space where our bodies will die. But the kingdom does not die with us. And so I just beg you to view your life as a kingdom purpose and not to be fearful because God is in control of our days. And he does hear our cry. He does hear our prayer. So let's keep praying. Let's keep crying because he is faithful each and every day to hear us. Well, certainly God has his ways of um, orchestrating the message that he wants to share with us. My notes seem to be getting smaller. Um, On Wednesday, I uh, I started to remember, oh yes, I'm I'm teaching this Shabbat, and... uh, we were so focused on the things we needed to do for John's service, I wasn't completely sure about what to teach on this week. And um, while I was kind of starting to think about it and pray about that, um, I kind of have to tell you the story of how I knew this was the teaching I needed to give, because I had no idea. Um, but God very quickly brought to mind what had already been occurring over the last couple weeks in terms of teachings or sharing. That was why I wanted to. Um, so um, he brought to mind to me that we had had a prophetic word two weeks ago about Noah. And then Philip talked about Job last week, and that immediately triggered something in my mind, and I thought, no, no, God, that's not what you want me to teach on. No, that's... Like, I knew where he was going. 
And I said, okay, God, I know where this is going. You're talking about Noah, Job, and Daniel. And I said, okay, if that's what you want me to teach on, God, then you need to provide the Daniel. And it, it couldn't be a sign. It couldn't be something like, hey, we talk about Daniel in the liturgy. We talk about Job in the liturgy. We even talked about Noah this morning in Torah study, right? But those were expected. And so I said, okay, God, I know where you're taking this. You're talking about Noah, Daniel, and Job. So if you want me to talk about this, you, you need to bring Daniel somehow. And for those of you who came to the celebration of life um, for John, that's, that's where the Daniel happened. And uh, it, you might not have noticed it, but I was looking for it. So that's why I noticed it. Um, but it happened at the very beginning with Jonathan Burnus, um, which is interesting because um, when I had shared that before the last couple of years, I didn't know John, um, what, not, not really well anyway, one of the interesting connections that I found out with John was actually Jonathan Burnus. Philip and I, back in 2012, had gone to a conference where Jonathan Burnus was teaching our portion of that conference. And so we at least got to meet him and learn from him and, and things like that, and then found out that John had spent time with Jonathan Burnus, and that was the source of how John went to Zimbabwe, okay, uh, was with Jonathan Burnus's ministry. Right, it was connected. It was, yes, it was connected with the former Soviet Union ministry as well, yeah. Um, so... Um, So anyway, Jonathan Burnus, unfortunately, just because of the nature of the circumstances, there's a lot of people that had to send videos or something like that to share with John. Jonathan Burnus was able to be here. And so we gave him the mic at the very beginning because he had to catch a plane, and this is what he shared about John. He shared from Daniel 12, and um, I think he focused on verse 3, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. Daniel 12 says this, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since the beginning of the nation until then. But at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse, and those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. And Jonathan Burnus shared that, that whenever he thought of John, he said he thought of that verse, Daniel 12, verse 3. Um, and we're going we're gonna to come back to Daniel in a little bit. But... but what hit me is that this is, this is the message that God was setting up, was actually in Ezekiel chapter 14, because it is a place in Scripture where God brings Noah, Daniel, and Job and talks about all three of them at the same time. And that's what's now happened in the last couple weeks, is we had the prophetic word about Noah, 
um, and I'm, I'm going to read part of that to remind everyone, okay? And then Philip had an excellent teaching about Job last week um, that was very timely and important for us as a congregation. And then Daniel now. And I, again, I'll come back to Daniel a little bit more at the end. Um, let me read the prophetic word about Noah again from two weeks ago. This was from Leah Blake. And she said that what she saw, the, the port, Noah was the one-year portion that week. She said it was like God opened the ark and invited remnant to come on board. She said even during that year, while Noah was on the ark, that Noah still had to trust in God. He was on the ark. During the storm, during the flood still, he had to trust in God even during that year while he was on the ark. And she said, it was like God was inviting us as remnant to come and trust me. In other words, don't be in a hurry to figure things out. And then when God opens the door on the ark and we emerge, that remnants will bear much fruit. Okay, that was the word that Leah shared with us two weeks ago. That was about Noah. Most of you, if not all of you, remember Philip's teaching on Job last week. If you didn't see it, go watch it again. Um... And then Jonathan Burnus shared about Daniel, that when he thought about John and the kind of man that John was and how he dealt with things, that he was like the stars shining in the brightness of heaven, okay? And that was one of the themes that came up. So keep those things in mind as we're talking through this, okay? And especially even um, what Lisa just shared, actually, Lisa literally came up right before this and said, can I have a few minutes to share? Absolutely, and that's what she shared. So keep those things in mind. So we're going to go to Ezekiel 14, and I'm going to start at the beginning. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. The word of Adonai came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. They have put the stumbling block of their iniquity right before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says Adonai Elohim, every man from the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity right before his face, and then comes to the prophet, I, Adonai, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. So I may take hold of the house of Israel in their hearts. I may take hold of the house of Israel in their hearts, for they have all become estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Adonai Elohim, return, turn away from your idols, turn your faces from all your abominations. For anyone from the house of Israel or the outsiders who dwell in Israel who breaks himself away from me, take, uh, from me takes idols into his heart puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me through him, 
I, Adonai, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a proverb and cut him off from among my people. Then you will know that I am Adonai. When the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, Adonai, have deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him. I will destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet will be the same as the punishment of the inquirer. So that the house of Israel will not wander again from me or defile themselves again with all their transgressions. They will be my people, and I will be their God. It is a declaration of Adonai. Before I read the rest of the chapter, I, I, I want some of this to sink in. So first of all, we try to remember the context of Ezekiel. Now, I didn't have time to go find out if this is before or after the destruction of the temple. But if you don't know, there were three exiles into Babylon. There was the first one where Nebuchadnezzar came the first time and took many of the leaders. Ezekiel was taken in the second exile and then taken to Babylon, and he was a Levite okay, of, in the priesthood. And then the third exile was when the temple was destroyed at the beginning of it, okay? And so Ezekiel was already in Babylon and received prophecies about the temple when the temple was going to be destroyed because it wasn't destroyed yet, okay? So I don't remember if this is before or after the destruction of the temple, but Ezekiel is in Babylon. So keep in mind here that where Israel is, they're already in exile, They've already experienced some kind of destruction, hardship. Um, they are in a foreign land, okay? And, and yet also, it even says that even in that foreign land, it talks about the outsiders who dwell in Israel. In other words, even there, there were Gentiles who chose to walk alongside Israel. Um which is even more fascinating considering the situation that Israel was in. The uh, exile, the hardship, and yet there were still people who chose to walk alongside them in those darkest hours. Okay? <clears throat> but even among those outsiders, God still held them to the same standard. In other words... What did you expect? Why did you think that you could come before me with your idols? That's what God is saying to them. In other words, you want to seek me. Like Lisa said, he hears our prayers. But if you take these idols... You, put, you keep your iniquity in your heart, 
you keep these sins and you hold on to them, and you have these idols that you put before your face. Where's my phone? Right? You have these idols that you put before your face, and then you come and you ask the prophet. You inquire of me, or maybe you, you ask the congregational leader or an elder. You come before them asking and seeking God's counsel, not thinking about what you're dragging with you. Not thinking about what you're bringing into the sanctuary. Not thinking about what you're bringing into the presence of God. And that above the ark, it says, Da lifne mi ata omed, means know before whom you stand. Okay? And God turns around and says, if someone does this, I'll answer them myself. I'll speak to them. And then they'll, they'll understand that I'm God. They'll understand who I am. And the result being that he's going to cause them to bear the punishment. Now, this could include the prophet, as he says, right? I don't mean to raise us up as congregational leaders or elders and assume that we're guiltless. If, if we give a word, and it's a deceiving word, that is also from God in a sense because of our iniquity. That it's, it's, it's for his purposes that he does that, which is why for us as elders, we try to be careful not to do these same things. If I were to keep the iniquity in my heart and keep these, elder, these idols before my face and then come up here and teach to you, I would bear the punishment, right? So this is, this is the, the situation that we find ourselves in so often, right? Of we don't understand or appreciate how many idols we're still holding on to and we're dragging in with us, right? Maybe in arrogance or um, out of fear or holding on to something of the world, okay? And I don't, I don't know that I really need to expound on that too much because I do feel like for most of you there's a little bit of this that's preaching to the choir of you understand that there could be idols in your life you understand what your iniquity is right but it becomes more clear what those are when you hold on to them and then try to come into the presence of God or when you hold on to them and you approach someone trying to seek godly counsel, and you start to feel like there's that square peg trying to fit into the round hole, and you realize there's something in my heart that's not right. And that is God himself answering us. Okay? Just as he says here. Now, <clears throat> before I continue in Ezekiel 14... 
I want to go real quick to Amos 4, verses 6 through 13. It says this, So also I myself have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. In other words, like famine. Okay? Yet you have not returned to me, declares Adonai. Also, I myself withheld from you the rain when three months remained to the harvest. In other words, right when the rain was really critical. I caused it to rain on one city, while on another city I sent no rain. One piece of ground would get rain, while the portion not rained on would wither. Excuse me. So two or three cities go staggering to one city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares Adonai. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, the locusts had devoured, yet you have not returned to me, declares Adonai. I sent among you a plague in the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword with your chariot horses in captivity. I made the stench of your camp, rise up even to your own nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares Adonai. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You became like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares Adonai. Therefore, here is what I will do to you, Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains, he who creates the wind, who declares his thoughts to man, who makes dawn out of the darkness, who walks above the heights of the earth, his name is Adonai Elohei Tzvaot, Adonai, God of hosts. So he says, I called you. I called you, maybe not with a word. Maybe I called you through your suffering. I called you through your poverty or I called you through a famine, or I called you through loss of something, or I called you maybe even by destroying you or everything that you hold dear, and yet you've not returned to me. And so he says, well then, if you wouldn't return to me when I did this or I did that, then I'm going to come meet you face to face, 
Prepare to meet your God. <clears throat> so now let's go back. Not yet. Not yet. Not to Ezekiel. I forgot one passage. I forgot one passage. Um, that I didn't give this to you, Evangelina. Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, verses 16 to 20. So God says, prepare to meet your God. I'm going to come see you face to face. So what's he going to do? What's God going to do? He's going to come and talk to us. What's he going to do? Here in Isaiah, it says this. Isaiah 1, verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of Adonai has spoken. Not like through a prophet in a sense, but face to face so that you hear it from his mouth. Imagine you're caring for someone else's child. And you know you're responsible for taking care of that child. And maybe you've even been given some authority by the parent to say, yes, you can discipline them if needed. Okay? They tend to do this or do that. This is how they tend to act up. And this person is like a prophet, in a sense, responsible in place of the parent to teach this child and to share with them and say, no, don't do that. But then at some point, if the child doesn't listen, you say, okay, it's time to go get your mom or dad. And then what do you have? You have the mom or dad come over and grab the wrist. Let's go talk. And then the parent goes, come now. Let us reason together. You wouldn't return to me. You wouldn't listen to me. So I'm going to bring you through this. 
whether you want to or not. Because though your skin, your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. God's saying, I'm going to bring you to that point where you have to make this choice and you can't avoid it anymore. You think that you can do what you want to do. You think that when things start to get hard, that the idols will have answers for you. You think that when these things start to happen to you, that you can say, what sin have I committed? Why is this happening to me? But God says, I'm calling you back. I'm calling you to return to me. You see, We should return to Ezekiel. This is, this is where we need to go. So let me go back to Ezekiel 14. So I'm starting in verse 12. The word of Adonai came to me saying, Son of man, suppose a land sins against me by trespassing grievously. And I stretch out my hand over it, break off its staff of bread, send famine upon it, and cut it off from man and beast, even if these three remain, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, be in it, they would only deliver their own souls by their righteousness. It is a declaration of Adonai. If I cause evil beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and make it a wasteland so that no one would pass through because of the beasts, even if these three were in it as I live, says Adonai, they will not deliver sons or daughters, they would only deliver themselves, but the land will be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, let the sword go through the land so that I may cut off, from, that I may cut off man and beast from it. Even if Noah, Daniel, and jo did I skip that? Sorry, though these three men were in it, as I live, says Adonai, they will not deliver sons or daughters, for they will only deliver themselves. Or suppose I were to send a plague to that land and pour out my fury upon it in blood, 
to cut off man and beast from it, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. As I live, says Adonai, they would not deliver either a son or a daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says Adonai, how much more if I send my four dreadful judgments against Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the evil uh, beasts, and the plague to cut man and beast off from it. I'm going to come back to the rest of that. But you can understand here that he focuses on Jerusalem, but he's laying out a general principle. If God decides that he's going to bring something against the land, there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing that you can do It's that parent when they grab the child by the wrist and says, let's go. And so even though he's focused on Jerusalem, he means this as an understanding of us, that there's nothing... We can do about it. Now, we're tempted to have a similar um, perspective as Job in, in the wrong way. Philip did really good about what Job did in the right way. But remember, there was one rebuke that God had for Job at the end of Job. It was, would you justify yourself by by essentially accusing me of wrongdoing, right? That's what God said to Job. In other words, would you say that I'm the one that made a mistake just so that you look like you're the one that did something right? Because you would say, come on, why, why did God do this to, to do this to me? What did I do wrong, Right? Is there really any one of us that could stand before God and say, what did I do wrong? I mean, really. We have no room. We're not justified with the things that we've done, right? This is why we needed the salvation in Yeshua to be justified in Him. But what... Sometimes that removing of sin, it either has to be this voluntary repentance or it has to be a slightly more painful discipline. I say slightly. Sometimes it's not slightly more painful. But even repentance is painful, right? That's why many of us might avoid it because it can still be painful. And so, there's still some truth to the idea that if you choose righteousness in, when times are good, that yes, there's something that you receive in terms of a mercy or a blessing when times get difficult, right? He's saying about Noah, Daniel, and Job, 
They chose righteousness before the times were difficult. And then when times got difficult, they continued to be righteous, right? So it's not like, what's the point of righteousness? Like Psalm 73, where the writer is confused and he says, why did I keep myself clean? Look at what's happening to the wicked. They get whatever they want. They're strong. They're healthy. Why did I stay pure? When you look at how they're benefiting, but then he's, he realizes, he walks into the temple, and the first thing that you see in the courtyard in the temple is you see the ashes of the offerings. And the author of Psalm 73 realizes, oh, now I know their end. Maybe they're healthy now. Those animals were healthy. Those animals were unblemished, maybe even but now they're ashes. And that's the end of the wicked. Right? That's the end of the wicked. That they will be made into ashes. Okay? So there is still righteousness. There still is a good reason for us to live righteously. It is not worthless. It is not of no value. I definitely don't want you to just hear a rebuking and discouraging message today, which is why I'm coming back to Daniel later, okay? Um, but the point being that once God takes control of the situation, takes things by the hand and says, we're going this way, you're going to kind of get what you get, good or bad. God is going to show up and speak to you face to face and say, this is what I meant for you. I wanted you to repent. I wanted you to return to me. I wanted you to get rid of those idols. So let me finish in Ezekiel 14. There's two more verses. Ezekiel 14, 22. Yet, behold, survivors would remain in it who would be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, when they come to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you would be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought against Jerusalem, all that I have brought on it. They would comfort you when you see their ways and their deeds, so you will know that I have not done all that I have done without cause. It is a declaration of Adonai. In other words, he says, there will be a remnant. There will be survivors. And when you get to the end of this, you're going to see that remnant, and you're going to see their righteousness. You're going to see how they live. You're going to see their deeds. 
and then you're going to understand that God had every right and every good reason to do every single thing that he did, both good and bad, to us. You see, the idea of believing that because we're righteous that we won't experience suffering certainly isn't true. Philip kind of shot the bullseye on that one last week with Job, right? It doesn't mean we won't experience the suffering, but here's the thing. Even for those who have some righteousness before the suffering, and maybe they receive some mercy during the suffering, God still wants to take them through it. In other words, the righteousness that maybe you do have right now, that you do live out, that you do experience, God wants to bear more fruit in you. And your righteousness right now isn't actually where he wants you to be. And you're not going to get there without him taking you through the suffering. You see, the beginnings of the troubles, it does matter the kind of life that you've lived, whether you've lived a righteous life or not. It does matter. But it doesn't prevent all suffering, as we, again, last week with Job, right? But what God is trying to get to is the result. He says, this is where I want to go. You think you're doing all right right here. But I want you over here. I want you to be able to do this. I want you to have the kind of trust in me, like Lisa was talking about, that your righteous deeds, when the world sees you at the end of this, then they'll know that he is God. Then they'll understand, and you will understand, what God is doing. Right? When I shared um, previously about that, that prophetic word about little martyrdoms, and God told me that, no, those aren't for you to prepare for, they're part of the preparation for meeting him. Okay? So, that's what we're going through. If the bride is to make herself ready, is, is the bride going to be able to make herself ready if she's still soiled and stained and smelly, like it said in that other previous verse, the stench will raise up to your own nostrils. Is the bride ready if she still has the idols in front of her face. And so, we should understand that the suffering that God brings on us, certainly we are not so righteous as to not deserve it, 
to some degree. That's really not the point, okay? It's more about the end of a matter. I, I, Joe even quoted this from Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, where it says, the end of a matter is better than the beginning of it. You see, you want to look ahead. You want to look into the future and say, man, I know that suffering's coming. I know trouble's coming. And you really, really, really want to try to understand it. You really, really, really want to try to say, uh, how do I prepare for this? How do I avoid this? How do I, how do I stay safe? Or how do I take care of my family? And that's not actually the point. What God is trying to do is what he is going to achieve as a result of bringing you through that suffering. And that's why once he decides, it's time to go, let's talk, you're not going to be able to avoid it. You won't. Again, that is also why it's important to be righteous beforehand, to try to live a good kind of life before trouble comes. So this is where Noah, Daniel, and Job, I think their lives are very good examples for us of how to think about these times. And then I want to talk about us in particular a little bit as a congregation, okay? So let's think about Noah for a second, okay? He was preparing for the flood. It was a trouble that God told him was coming. Noah at least understood why. He at least said, I know why God's going to do this. He saw the world. He saw how evil it was. And so Noah, decided, and so Noah was faithful to obey. Now what I find interesting here is, if God told you that there was going to be a flood, what would you do? Now, God specifically told him to build the ark, right? But it's interesting that if you were to ask that question, you might come up with all kinds of crazy answers. Well, yeah, maybe I want to build a submarine instead, you know? Or um, maybe I, uh, um, I'll find the highest mountain. You know, you could come up with all kinds of different reasonings or excuses if God told you this trouble was coming, but you were coming up with your own ideas of what to do. And I think that's important because we could come up with all kinds of ideas of what we're supposed to be doing at this time. We could even have arguments and divisions in the congregation based upon thinking, no, we need to do this. No, we need to do that. No, I think you're doing it wrong. You're not leading us well. We need to go this way. And we can have all kinds of mistakes, divisions, because we think we know how to survive the trouble. But really, God kept it incredibly simple for Noah. Just build that boat. 
Just build that boat. I'll take care of the rest. Right? Noah didn't even shut the door. God shut the door. Right? So, Daniel. As a young man, Daniel experienced the entire Babylonian exile from beginning to end. And I think it's interesting about Lisa talking about how God hears the prayers that Daniel was a young man when he went into the exile and then, and then was raised up in the kingdom of Babylon and had various responsibilities, a job, okay? Things that he had to take care of because he was given those responsibilities, not just by Nebuchadnezzar. God raised him up and put him in that position. Because remember, God used Daniel to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, very similar to Joseph with Pharaoh, okay? So God gave him these responsibilities. So you can imagine that Daniel probably had an incredibly busy life, okay? Constantly with people asking him to make decisions about things. And yet he was faithful to always pray three times a day towards Jerusalem. Faithful to find that brief period. It didn't matter what was going on. And he was at least faithful in those things, and then that was the only thing that they could accuse him of. And so when he experienced the trouble... He was just simply doing what he knew he needed to be doing. And then he was thrown in the lion's den for it. But what did he do? Did he, did he think, oh, wow, I need, to, um, uh, I, I, uh, I need to somehow cover myself with mud, you know, so the lions don't smell me. Or I, I need to um, scream really loud and the lions will be scared. You know, there's all kinds of things he could have done that would have seemed maybe logical or right. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He didn't have to do anything. And God just shut the mouths of the lions. Right? The same with the fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? And then you have Job which I don't think I need to explain Job a lot because, again, Philip did it really well last week. But again, you think about how most of the book of Job is just a conversation. Job tried to live a righteous life, but then once once this suffering came on him, you don't see him uh, trying to do incredible things or trying to... um, even when he was weak, still get up and, you know, um, I, don't know I don't know what to say. Just The point is, it, Job was just a conversation. And he's just talking with his friends. He didn't have to accomplish great things. And yet God still approached him face to face and spoke to him and corrected him. But Job didn't have to do anything. And yet God then restored him. Now, I shouldn't say not do anything. Noah still had to be 
faithful with building the ark. Daniel still had to be faithful with his job and his role. Job still would have had to continue to be responsible for his family and his wealth that he was given again the second time, right? So it didn't change how they had to be righteous. Um, But the point was that God did something through the suffering. God did something through the pain. God did something with these terrible times of trouble that there was no way you could fully understand what was happening on the front end. And even if you're righteous, yes, it matters that you did live a righteous life before the trouble comes. But it doesn't mean you'll escape all of it. But if you look at the end of it, then you'll know that God had a reason for it. And I, I will tell you that you're not going to be able to see that end ahead of time. Think about the way he said this here in Ezekiel 14, right? He says, behold, when they come to you, when you see their ways and deeds, then you'll be comforted. We're not going to understand everything that God is going to do with this congregation. I do think that there's a couple things. I'm going to go on a slight bunny trail and then come back because I want to talk about us in particular as a congregation. I do think that there are some things that we can discern, but we have to be very careful about how we discern those things. And as I said in Torah study this morning, that sometimes you have to hold on to convictions and let go of opinions. And it really takes some wisdom to understand the difference. Okay? So, we may all have opinions here in this congregation, and we need to be careful not to hold those too tightly when other people have opposing opinions. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that so often a group reflects its leader in some way. And so a couple weeks ago, I asked everyone to raise their hands and say, who felt like in the last two months God has used you to specifically minister to somebody? And most everybody raised their hands, right? And I said, there it is. That was John. John said he wanted to be a minister of a congregation of ministers. There it is. But now... What I question about what's happening next is that whatever happens next for this congregation, we are not going to be the same at the end of it. We're not. I don't know what that looks like. The rest of us elders, we're trying to be patient and waiting. Remember Leah's prophetic word, don't be in a hurry to figure it out. I don't believe as a congregation that we have to have the answers right now. I actually think we just need to get back to the simple things. The things we know we need to do on a regular basis. Caring for the orphan. Caring for the widow. Right? Philip mentioned it this morning. 
with a couple of the men who consistently are helping take care of Annette. Those are things we know we need to do right now. Let's stick with some of those things, right? It's okay if we don't know other things. But here's the thing. So here's, here's what I see in terms of, I guess, a little bit of discernment about where we're at. So for Philip and Joe and I as elders, I was asking myself, what is common among the three of us? Because we're very different personalities, if y'all haven't figured that out. Um, okay, somebody said it. We're engineers, and it's kind of funny because as engineers, we'll look at Noah and be like, man, why did that take him 100 years to build the ark? I mean, what are you doing, growing your own trees or something? Um, <clears throat> he probably did, though. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, so let me give you my philosophy. When I'm training another engineer, a young engineer, one of the key things that I tell an engineer is I tell him, look, when there's problems with designs or your product or there's problems with how things need to get done or there's problems with the production process or any problems, some people might be able to solve some of them. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. That's what I tell engineers. I said, at the end of the day, if there's a problem that other people can't solve themselves, you are the one that has to solve it, and there might not be anybody else to back you up. Okay? Now, that's one of the reasons why it's important to have engineering teams and sometimes go to outside resources to bring in engineers as needed, but that's, the point is, that's the the best engineers are the ones that they own it. They own their work. And they say, I have to be involved in whatever this is that needs done. Right? And sometimes it's not, it's not some intricate or advanced technology. Sometimes it's no. This is the work, you have to do it this way, then this way, then this way, then this way, and I don't care if it's a lot of work. You have to do it this way, then this way, then this way, then this way, because that's how it works. And an engineer, this is why sometimes they get the, uh, the negative connotation of thinking that they're always right, because you have no idea how many times an engineer is faced with a problem where it's like, no, you took a shortcut, man. You tried to get ahead of yourself. You didn't like that that was too much work. You didn't like that that was difficult. You thought you could kind of just do it the easy way. An engineer has to come in and say, follow the instructions. Do it this way. Because that's how it works. And if you do what you know you're supposed to do, It will work. You try to take shortcuts or do it another way, you don't know what's going to happen. Especially for me as an electrical and controls engineer where I have to deal with the logic of machines, how you make decisions that um, 
so often, what's wrong is what's wrong in our own heads about how something is supposed to be. And even I'm forced into a position as an engineer where I think I want it to work this way, or I think I want it to work that way, and then I'm fiddling with it and playing with it, and all of a sudden, that, that's just not going to work that way. And I have to pay attention and learn and say, oh, that's going to do that. Oh, that's going to do that. Okay. And then start to work out a solution that works through things very systematically and often in very dumb, simple ways. But having to follow a certain process. And so it's interesting to me that as leaders, if we're all engineers, first of all, I think we're humble enough to not always believe we're right. So I, th I think we're okay there, but it's okay if you want to correct us sometimes, okay? Um, we have learned. But at the same time, we know that sometimes you just have to do the work. Sometimes you just have to do those simple, consistent things to do it right. And no matter how you want to take shortcuts, no matter how you want to save yourself work or save yourself a headache or save yourself some pain, sometimes the only way to do it is to do it the correct way, step by step. And I dare say that where we need to be as a congregation is that maybe we need to not think about things too complicated. Maybe we need to not try to take shortcuts or try to get to the end of this suffering too quickly. Maybe we just need to go through the process, step by step, however God leads, whatever it is, and he says, we're going to do this. All right, let's do that. And then God says, okay, we're going to do this. Let's do that. I didn't know what I was teaching on Wednesday. And God just, and so I prayed. God, give me the sign. And he said, okay, here it is. Right? One other thing that I sense is kind of common among Philip and Joe and I <clears throat> is a sense of duty. Now, <clears throat> this one is an interesting one in particular for my wife and I because she will express her frustration sometimes when I'm caring for her or doing something to show love for my wife and she says, I feel like you're just doing it out of duty. You don't actually want to comfort me right now. Or you don't actually want to listen to what I have to say right now. You're just doing it out of a sense of duty. I've never had a good answer. Now I have a good answer, so I'm going to share it with everyone. Okay? So, so let me kind of give you an analogy here. And th I, the more I've thought about this analogy, this analogy is... Um, You're going to remember this analogy, and then you're going to start looking at people a little bit differently. You'll, you'll understand why in a minute. Okay, so women emotionally are a little bit more like a spice cabinet, okay? 
In other words, when you open that cabinet, it's all right there. Okay? You can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a lot of that, right? And all of those motions, all of those emotions are available. Okay? But guys, emotionally, are a little bit more like your garage. Okay? And I know where that emotion is, but it's under there, it's behind that. If I try to get to it, I might knock this over, right? <laughs> and, and, um, and especially for me, I have now gotten this reputation in my own home where I tend to fix two things and break one, and I actually broke something this morning even. Yeah. Okay. And so it's, you know, I'm good, you know, I get I go look for that emotion. It's like, oh well, I was looking for that too. That's where it's been this whole time. Right? <clears throat> and so the thing is, what that what that means for women, okay, is that when you know that there's something that you is important to you, okay, I want to do this. What you're able to do is you're able to kind of go to your spice cabinet and say, that calls for this emotion. I'll sprinkle some of that on there. And you can use your emotions as a, a, a springboard, okay? You women are able to do that. You can grab that and say, right? And, and kind of, that helps you to be motivated so that you always have a little bit of emotion in what you're doing, Right? With guys, it might be like, it, I'm going to fix this quicker than it's going to take me to get to that, right? It could be, my, sometimes I have to accomplish something with what I have available, and not all of my emotions are always going to be available. And Philip even said it this morning. He said, we're not always going to feel the right way. I, I mean... Women, you can kind of grab a little bit and sprinkle it in there. Sometimes you're doing that when you've got, you know, some meal that is messed up and didn't get spiced right, and you've got to put something else in there to help it, right? This is what I mean. You're going to think about this analogy differently. You're going to, you're going to go to women, you're going to be like, okay, you're going to look at how they cook and be like, okay, that, that describes their personality. And then you're going to go look at a man's garage and say, okay, that describes his personality. <laughs> um... Huh? <laughs> right? Don't look at my garage. <laughs> um, so, um, so this sense of duty for guys, and especially when I see it in Joe and Philip and I, because it kind of has some different motivations for each of us, but this sense of duty is this idea that we know what has to be dealt with right now, and we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it. And no, I might not have everything that I want to have available. Maybe I want this particular tool, and that tool is buried somewhere, or that tool is in my truck, or that tool is in the wrong place, and i got to fix this with the tools I've got available right now. Right? And that's how I would describe for men that sense of duty. That 
There are plenty of times that we don't want to do what we know we need to do. But we'll do it anyway. And Joe has certainly made this known at different times when he was, he's very clear. He'll tell you exactly what he doesn't want, right? And yet he'll do it anyway. And he comes from that, that military discipline. So it's obvious to see his sense of duty, okay? For Philip, when do you not see him here? Right? There was a teacher that I remember back in high school, and we would come at 9 o'clock in the evening after football games, and that teacher was always there. It's like, how, where is this guy? Like, he's always at the school. Okay, and that's kind of how I think of Philip. It's like, he knows he needs to be present. Okay? For his, to support relationships to be there, to accomplish whatever he needs to accomplish, that is how Philip expresses his sense of duty. Right? So for me, the way I would describe my personality, I'm hoping you guys like this. So my personality, the way I would describe it is kind of like a bingo card. Okay? You kind of have the order, you got things in their place, you know what, how it all kind of works. But then it, when you get inside those rules, it's pretty random, okay? And, uh, and so if you don't understand what I mean, just follow Jeconiah around for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and you kind of understand that there's some consistency, but then inside that consistency, there's some randomness. And uh, whenever I'm feeling either lucky or really unlucky, I take that card and then turn it over just to mix things up a little more. Um, and so when my sense of duty shows up, it's rather different because what God has tended to do in my life is to be in a position where no one else can do something. And he puts me right there and says, that's what I want you to do, Zach. Somehow there's a hole. There's some gap. There's no one else there. This is where my philosophy on being an engineer comes from, that you're, the buck stops with you, right? That you might not see me. I, I could be up there doing worship. I could be over here dancing. I could be doing sound. I did years ago. I did that years ago. You'll see me dance sometimes. Who knows what Zach is going to do? I don't even know, just to tell you the truth sometimes, Okay. Because, because what happens to me is that God puts me in a position where he says, I need this done. And somehow, if I don't do it, something goes wrong or something just doesn't go as well. And, and that's how my sense of duty shows up. Okay, that's why it's random. You don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen because I don't even know. I don't know what God's going to do with me on a day-to-day -day basis. So I say this because as a congregation, I feel like maybe we can discern something from that about what God is doing with us. That I do feel like we need to be patient 
and just go through the process that God prescribes for us. Step one, then step two, then step three, A, B, C, then step four, and just let him walk us through whatever he's going to do with us. And we don't have to know what's going on. We don't have to have all the answers, but just walk through that process with us, right? And then that sense of duty to believe that whatever happens, however we feel, whatever gifts we have, whatever whatever provision we have or don't have, that we need to be present, we need to do it when we don't want to do it, and we need to be ready for things that maybe we don't expect. But we know that God puts us in a position that we're the ones that have to have that sense of duty to do it. Right? And then, then, we'll get back to this at the end of Ezekiel where he says, Behold, when they come to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you would be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought against Jerusalem and all that I have brought on it. Right? We're not going to get it. We're not going to understand. And we're not even going to be the people we need to be yet until we go through this process. That's what God wants to do with us. And then, at the end of it, Then we'll be comforted. We'll look at it and say, wow, he had to take us through that. It kind of had to happen that way. I get it now. Think of the parable of the weeds with Yeshua, where he says, no, don't go pluck up the weeds yet. Right? We need to let it get to the harvest. And then as you're harvesting, now we'll take the weeds, and then we'll have the good. And then his servants finally understood. Understood, you can't just always take out the weeds right away. Okay? So, let me go to Daniel, and this is where we're going to finish. I want to read Daniel 11, 33 to 35. Those who are wise among the people will instruct many. Though for many days they will fall by the sword or be burned, captured, or pillaged. When they stumble, they will receive a little help. But many will join them deceitfully. Even some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless, until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. We can't get ahead of it. And we may stumble so that we're refined. So now let me end with Daniel 12 again. Daniel 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse. And those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars 
forever and ever. Right? We have hope to look to the end of what God is going to do. And whatever God decides to do with us as a congregation, whatever troubles we go through, if we just trust, let Him guide us. Be willing to go with Him. Not the child that's being dragged along and screaming, right? But rather the child that's, that says, I did this, didn't I? I did that again. What do you want me to do? Right? Then when this is all said and done, when we get to the end, when we get to Yeshua's return, or when we get to the end of our lives, for those of us who will die before he returns, right? Then we'll be able to know and say, yeah, that's, that's comforting. It's actually comforting to understand what God accomplished with the suffering. What God accomplished when he purified us, when he removed those idols from us. What he accomplished, in a sense, by bringing evil on us. Because that's what it said in um, Ezekiel 14. Right? He's the one that can take the evil and turn it into good. Then we'll be comforted. So that's the hope that we should have. That's the patience and endurance that we need to have to stick with God and hold on to Him regardless of what comes. Right? And He will hold us. Just like Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he gave a lot of examples that if you were to think of them one by one, were pretty terrible. But those couldn't separate us from God's love. And as a congregation, I think that's what we need right now. We need to keep it simple. We need to continue to serve in the ways that we know need to be done. And even if nothing looks great, if nothing looks miraculous for a while, if nothing, if it, maybe things will start to look worse. Maybe there will be more really bad things happen that's specifically to us, not just in the world. It's bad enough, the things in the world. But if there are other things that happen specifically to us, to trust that God has a cause that God has a purpose in everything that he's doing and to trust that it is leading towards righteousness and good and blessing. I might end with the analogy that Pam Geis shared with us. She was talking about, uh, this was her word to us as elders. I think it's good for the congregation. She was talking about a potter that when the clay is very difficult to work with, that first of all, you have to soak it in the water, get a little bit more wet, okay? And so, hey, maybe you want to stay clean and dry and have no trouble, and then you feel like you're getting dunked under the water again, right? But then what he might do if the clay 
is not working well is they take it and they smack it on the table to loosen it up and make it easier to work with. Right? And then, it, then it's moldable. Then you can shape it. Then you can start getting it in the process and molding it how you want. But you've got to break some things first. You've got to get things loosened up. And I dare say as a congregation, especially the last few months, but especially the last few weeks, do you feel like you've been a little bit more moldable? Like you're a little bit more willing to listen to God and what he has to say? Right? You really weren't in as good of a place as you thought you were before. And you're really not in as good of a place as you think you are now. God wants to bring you somewhere else. And as a congregation, I think it's the same thing. We are not going to be the same congregation at some point. God is going to change and form us to be closer into his image. <clears throat> so why don't I pray? And we'll do the Kaddish. Kiddish. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for your words. Thank you, Father, that despite our sins, despite our iniquity, despite our idols, you still have mercy on us and show us those things so that we can repent of them. And Father, thank you that you have heard our prayers and that you have chosen to meet with us and speak to us and to answer us yourself with your words. Father, thank you that... <clears throat> Thank you that you give us enough of an understanding that we can trust. And Father, we just ask that you would hold us firmly. That you would, you would hold us even in our discipline, in our, in our rebellion, Father, to guide us so that we trust you, Father, to take our sins and even though they are red like crimson right now, that you will purify us and make us white as snow. And Father, we just pray that as a congregation that you would do the same thing, Lord, that even though our sins be as scarlet, that you would make us white as snow, Lord, to purify our hearts, to draw nearer to you and to do what you want us to do, Lord. Father, we pray that you would give us a peace and an understanding as we go from this place, Lord, for your will, for your purposes, for your kingdom. Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.